Welcome to The Notice, where together we notice the mercy of God. I'm Susan Hookstra, your host. The Notice podcast explores our need for validation and affirmation through biblical musings and conversations with special guests. Experience relevant topics and encouragement as we take notice of how the God of mercy satisfies. On this episode of The Notice, did you know a sunflower is heliotropic? What that means is when it's at its healthiest, its main purpose is to have its face point towards the sun. As believers, we are at our healthiest when we are pointed towards the sun, our God. However, there are times when we try to get from other sources what should rightfully come from God. So listen in as I welcome Jack Magruder, Executive Pastor of Trinity Church in Lansing, Michigan. We do talk about sunflowers and a little bit about Gideon. We talk about those idols, both obvious and unobvious, and how they can keep us from noticing Well, I'm excited to have Pastor Jack McGruder in the studio. Jack is a currently executive pastor of Trinity Church here in Lansing, Michigan, my home church. And that's why I will call him Pastor Jack. Pastor Jack has had a really unique background. In addition to his experience as a pastor, he was previously vice president of Entermission, a nonprofit Christian organization who partners with others to tackle the social, physical, and spiritual challenges of marginalized people. He served as director of life missions for Granger Community Church and served in missions in India for over 10 years. Before coming to Trinity in 2015, Jack was executive pastor of ministries at Crossroads Community Church in Vancouver, Washington. Not only is he a black belt in the martial arts, he is also the co-author of the book, Missional Moves, 15 Tectonic Shifts That Transform Churches, Communities, and the World. So, Pastor Jack, welcome. Hey, thank you, Susan. This is going to be fun. I'm so glad you're here, and I'm excited to share with our listeners a recent sermon that you did. And I was so impacted by that, and I said, oh, I just got to have him come on and talk about it on the notice. So, here you are, and I'm so grateful, you know, but the topic you talked about was idolatry. And that's kind of a tough topic. And in Christian circles, we don't talk about idols that much. So can you tell them a little bit more about what you think idolatry really is? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. If you're like me, um, I've been in Christian circles for a really long time. And typically, uh, when you hear people talk about idolatry, I think it, it conjures images of, um, you know, the images from the Old Testament where people would carve statues and I mean you read about really horrible things in the Old Testament people would sacrifice their children or they would um, you know bow down and forget God and and so you know you have these mental images of human sacrifice or animal sacrifice or just really awful things and we think man so glad we don't have those problems anymore you know I mean I live here in the United States I mean I can't remember the last time I saw somebody bowing down to a statue and you know, right sacrificing what is precious to them and for you know before it or Whatever, and and it's interesting because here in the U.S., I think we don't have problems with idols, um, but we think other people do. Uh, you know, you mentioned Susan. I, I had the privilege of working in India for ten years, and um, 
you know, as an American, the first time you go to India, one of the things that you notice is because Hinduism is the is the primary religious system in that country. I mean, there there are statues and temples everywhere. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. we don't we don't see very many things like that in this culture. Um, but man, you go to India and you can't escape it. It's everywhere. I mean, people are bowing down in front of something. You know, they're sacrificing food or they're sacrificing, you know, different things to, to idols. And so the temptation, I think, is to do the same thing that we do when we hear about the Old Testament idolatry issues. As we walk, we come home and we go, whew, I sure am glad here in the United mm-hmm. States we don't have any idols. We don't have any idols. We don't struggle with idolatry. I feel bad for all those other people that, that you know, that have that problem. And the truth is we have just as many idols, if not more, mm. but, but ours makes sense to us. And so they're invisible to us. We don't realize that we're doing the exact same thing. And oftentimes we look with this kind of sense of pity or disdain on other cultures that tend to still have very physical, obvious idols like statues. But I don't think we realize that we have just as many and we do the exact same thing. We just don't realize that it's idolatry. So uh, for me, I think we started realizing, my wife and I started realizing this when we started walking through kind of a spiritual journey that started about seven or eight years ago. When someone defined for us basically this idea that an idol is anything, uh, any any person, anything, or any attitude, um, where you're trying to get something that should rightfully come from God. You know, God is sufficient. He is our provider. And um, he says in the New Testament, right, like um, that he has made everything available to us that is necessary for life and godliness. And so everything that we need, we should be getting from the Father. But anytime we substitute some other person, some thing, some attitude um, as a source um, for life and godliness, anything that we need, um, that we try to extract what should rightfully come from God, we make that thing God in that area mm-hmm. of our life. And that's really all an idol is. It's it's trying to get from any person, thing, or attitude something that we should rightfully be only trying to get from God. And so you talk a little bit about the sunflower and how it can help us understand a little bit more about idolatry. So tell us about that. Yeah, I started calling this the sunflower effect when um, it was really interesting. My my wife and I were spending some time in prayer, and um, um, she just kind of had this really fun image of a, of a sunflower pop up. We started doing some research about it, and we started learning that, um, as you mentioned in the introduction, that sunflowers are heliotropic. And what that means is, is that sunflowers, especially when they're young, um, their face actually follows the path of the sun across the sky. And so um, when they get older, they kind of solidify. They tend to to sort of um, position themselves facing the east so that they have this maximum amount of time facing the sun as it kind of makes its course across the sky. But we thought that was a fantastic metaphor um, for what we're supposed to be doing as followers of Christ. We are at our best and our healthiest when we are receiving the rays of the sun, the nourishing Mm -hmm, life mm -hmm. and the warmth of the sun by having our faces positioned toward the God that we serve. And things usually creep in as problems when we begin to drop our gaze, we drop our face, and we start trying to get what we need from God by looking at the other sunflowers that are around us, or or maybe to the soil below, or we, we, we kind of lose that idea that our nourishment comes from God, and we start trying to get our nourishment from other things that are around us, and really, no matter how much they look like the sun, they aren't the sun. Uh, no matter how much they're supposed to look like um, the thing that we need, they aren't the thing that we need. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, we call it the sunflower effect. That's that's what it means when we are appropriately keeping our faces pointed toward the one who is the sustainer and the giver of life for us. So do you know what happens to the sunflower when they are pointed towards the sun? Yeah, so I think the thing would be, right, like if you, if you stuck a sunflower in the shade where it could not get 
um, an adequate view of the sun. I mean, it withers and dies, right? Um, so like just because you water it or fertilize it, it's still not going to become all that it is supposed mm-hmm. to be. It's a sunflower. Uh, it is meant to be. I mean, like, I, like, you know, we all know Van Gogh, right? Like who this great painter. I mean, he had this penchant for, for painting sunflowers. I can't think of any Van Gogh painting where the sunflowers are in a shaded barn, right? Like, I mean, like every painting that you look at, I mean, you might see one in a vase or something like that. But if you, I, I used to be a florist. Uh, I already know by the time you cut a flower, it's dead. Right. So like, I mean, this, it might stay pretty for a while, but it's not getting nourishment any longer. I mean, the, the, the minute you cut the flower is the minute that it dies. And so I would say the same thing. The minute you cut the sunflower off from its source, which is the sun, is the minute that it starts to die and wither. And that is just not what God has for us. So the sunflower effect would be for us to stay out of the shade with our faces pointed continually toward the sun. And in our case, that's Jesus. Right. Um, but if we allow ourselves to be kind of placed out of that arc, um, what we start trying to do is, is we start trying to kind of siphon life from the other things that are around us. And I, I think that's kind of particularly interesting because if you look at a sunflower, it looks kind of like the sun, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. got a big mm-hmm. face and, you know, the, the yellow leaves kind of look a little bit like rays of the sun. I mean, the sunflowers can be really tall. I, I looked uh, I looked up a fact, the tallest sunflower on record is 30 something feet tall. I mean, wow. like, you can understand, wow. right? Like, if you were to like look around, if you were a sunflower, you could understand how you could get confused. I mean, oh man, I thought I was looking at the sun, but really it was just another sunflower. I mean, we understand how that happens, but the truth is, unless we are positioning our face um, to be able to receive what we need from the sun, we're going to start to wither and we're going to start to die, um, which is why it is so important that we identify the other things that are imposters around us that we attach ourselves to, to try to get the life that we think that we need. In fact, I've even say like the minute a sunflower stops getting its life from the sun, it actually becomes a weed, right? Mm -hmm. Like weeds Mm -hmm. survive by siphoning life out of the other plant life around them. And when we become, when we stop becoming sunflowers that are getting what we need from the sun and we start trying to get it from the other plants and things around us, we actually kind of degenerate from our intended state that God created us to be. And we become weeds. We become like vampires somehow that are trying to you know suck and siphon life from other things that really are not intended to be sources of life and you know it's interesting you said two things that i want to highlight you said something about receiving we have to be in a position to receive the father and to receive what he has for us so that's one thing but also when we don't get ourselves in that position to receive the son in this analogy we look for other places we look at to other things so when we don't get what you need, what do we do instead? Yeah, so I think we sense this um, gap, right? So like I like Blaise Pascal um, used to say that every human has a God-shaped hole. Um, this, this, this sort of like empty space that was intended to be filled by our creator. Um, and we all sense that. But I think a lot of times we don't know how to get what we need from God. We don't know really what to do to have him connect and fill that space up. So we do the best we can. We start shoving stuff into that hole. And maybe it's like, maybe I said, maybe it's other people. Like maybe you need the affirmation from other people. You need other people to tell you that you're doing great. And there's nothing wrong with affirmation, but when it's a source of life for us, right? When it's a source of meaning or when it's a source of purpose or a source of identity, we're taking something created and we're trying to shove it into that hole where only the creator can fill us and sustain us. Maybe, maybe it's our stuff. You know, I, maybe it's, We've got this thing that we just can't let go of, or we find like, hey, if it's just that kind of car, if I just had a Porsche, you know, I mean, I I would be meaningful and I'd have a sense of purpose. And, I, you know, I, if I just had this thing, if I had a boat or a house, or if I just had that kind of wife or that kind of husband, and, and what we start doing is we start trying to pack that sense of need 
with things that we can identify that we can lay hold of. I, I even know people who do it with attitudes and identities, right? Like um, we can even do that with, well, I'm a whatever, right? Fill it in. Well, I, we do this, I think most recently, and this is an election year. We do this with our politics. Well, hey, I'm a Democrat. So you know what that means. Well, hey, I'm a Republican. So you know what that means. Well, hey, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm whatever, like fill in the blank, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm, uh, I'm second amendment or I'm gun control or I'm pro-life or I'm pro-choice. Or, I mean, like we have these things that are like labels and we, we look to them to give us a sense of meaning and definition and identity and purpose. And the truth is, is those may or may not be great causes, but they are not meant to be the source of our life. Mm-hmm. The source of our life and our identity and our meaning and our purpose is supposed to come directly from God and no other source. But I see people around us all the time, and that's what defines them. They are defined by the things that are on the bumper stickers on their cars or the places where they give their time, their talent, and their resources. And most of the time as Americans, we have no idea that what we're really doing is we are making that thing an idol, and we are trying to get from it something that should rightfully come from God. Here's the thing, Susan. Only God knows who he built you to be, right? He knows you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. We learned that in Psalm 139. He said, okay, this is my child, Susan, and she's going to reflect something true about me to the world around her. But if you don't know what that is, if you have not heard the Father say to you, this is is who you are, then a lot of us don't know who we are. So we let the stuff around us or the people around us or the circumstances around us or the options around us tell us that. And because we need that, then we look to them to continue to reinforce that. And that is just idolatry. And the, the thing that impresses me about that is that actually God knows us better yeah. than we know ourselves. And sometimes something happens and we think, well, God took that from me or he's not supplying what I need. When the reality is, is maybe he's really saying, you don't need it, Susan. You just yeah, don't fact, need it. And we may even talk about this later, but I would say like, if you don't think you have idols in your life, then like, uh, I got two quick questions to ask you, you know, how to actually reveal that, right? Like, um, I'm going to look at what you defend and I'm going to look at how you respond when something's taken away. So like, if I, if I challenge something, like, let's say, uh, let, let's say that you have a particular possession that you really like, like, let, let's say it is your car, right? I have a buddy who uh, had a friend who um, grew up very poor. And one of his uh, one of his things was is he he wanted a cherry red BMW, and the the issue was for him it, it wasn't just the BMW actually, it was all the things that the BMW signified. The BMW signified that he had made it financially. It signified that he was wealthy, and that he was powerful, and that he was successful. And so like it wasn't just the cherry red BMW. The cherry red BMW symbolized so many things to him, right? So the issue was. It became a symbol for him, not just a symbol, actually. It didn't just become a symbol, but it was an identifier for him of all these things that his soul wanted to crave. Do I matter? Am I meaningful? Am I successful? Am I attractive? Am I all of these things? And so, like, here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with having a cherry red BMW, but the minute you make that thing your source of all of those things, meaning in life and success and all of those kinds of things, now it's an idol and now it's a problem. So here's the thing. If I would have walked up to my friend's friend and I would have challenged the reason why he had the BMW, right? If I would have asked him if he really needed that or what was he trying to get from that or whatever like that, I, I'm reasonably certain my friend would defend it, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. he needed yep. that thing, so he would defend mm-hmm. it. And I, I actually say this, I think we defend our gods, man. You can see this in scripture, right? 
like in scripture, when you challenge people's gods, like they fight back hard. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, in Judges six, right? Like you talk about Gideon. I love Gideon. One of the first things that Gideon does, right, that God calls him to do, is not lead the armies of Israel against Midian. The first thing God asks him to do is actually to tear down his father's idols. So his father's got idols. His father's got an idol to Baal. His father's got a, a what's called an Asherah pole, um, which was a, a dedicated um, kind of an idol to Ashtoreth, um, the, the consort of Baal. And one of the first things that God asks Gideon to do is to chop them down, to chop down the altar, to chop down the pole, and then make a sacrifice to the Lord God on that, right? Like it's mm-hmm. a consummate kind of in-your-face mm-hmm. moment. Like I'm going to tear down this altar, I'm going to tear down this idol, and I'm going to show you who we should really be worshiping. Right. And so people in the village get up the next day. And what do they do? I mean, they come right out and they demand Gideon's head. Who did this? We demand that you bring him out and let us kill him. Right. Why is that? Because, man, you know what? Like our gods, we protect them. I mean, we need them. We need them to give us that life that we get from them. And so if something starts to threaten that, if something starts to threaten our God, we we come up in force, man. I mean, like we show up with with guns and blades to try to make sure that we defend that. Uh, if you have a person who's a, you know, has a particular political affiliation, and you start to challenge that, you start to push on that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like if they respond hyper aggressively, if they're not able to respond to you with grace and dignity and honor, becoming you as a child of the living God, you know what? That that might be an idol. Like, and here's the thing: if you know me, I am highly opinionated. Like, ask anybody who knows me. Like, I have definitive opinions about everything, right? Um, but here's the deal. If my opinion begins to prevent me from responding to you the way that my God and King would respond to you, then I may have actually supplanted that thing as my God and King. Why? Because we defend our gods, man. That's and the good. second thing would be that's similar. Be like, if I challenge that's, it, that's good. if I challenge it and you defend it ruthlessly, bloodily, then I would actually ask whether or not you're getting something from it that should rightfully come from God. And you've already alluded to it, Susan. The second thing for me would be, what happens if I take it away? I I have a friend um, who has a little boy and he loves his little boy. And that's not bad. Like it's wonderful to love our children. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. My friend is trying to get something from his son that should rightfully come from God. He loves the way his little boy adores him and affirms him. He loves Mm -hmm. the way his little boy just gets like all of his joy from my friend. And here's the thing. That's awesome in some respects. Like little kids are meant to be symbols of beauty and joy to us. But my friend gets it from his son in a way that he should rightfully get from God. And here's the thing. He even confided to me recently. He was like, he was like, you know what? I, I don't think I could process life if my little boy was taken away. Wow. Like I, I wouldn't even want to keep on going living. Like I can't even imagine a future where my little boy is not present. Now here's the thing, friends. I'm just going to pause. My wife and I, like we lost a child. I get the darkness of that place. I am not trying to trivialize losing a child. We, we even had a history of miscarriages uh, before we lost a child. And, and here's the thing, like I'm not trying to pretend that that's not difficult or that that is not a dark, dark space to walk right, in. We've walked right. that path. But what I am saying is, is that if your children are your source of meaning, if they are your source of purpose, if they are your source of joy and affirmation, and if they went away, or maybe they just grew up and moved away, if that thought to you causes your soul to ache with need, 
then it is possible that your children, which are meant to be a good gift to you, right. it is possible that you've taken what is a good gift and you've made it into an idol. And I'm just telling you, that's going to be a problem. And that doesn't seem like it would be obvious like you explained like a, a statue or something. It seems like, no, this is a good thing. Loving my kids is a good thing. So that's one of those ones that are not really obvious to us, but could be. You know, I also think of another one of, of moral superiority. Often oh, yeah. as Christians, we get caught on making that an idol. And what I mean by that is that I talk a lot about mercy on this podcast because I believe obviously the cross and mercy is the answer for all. But mercy tells us that we're not better than somebody else. We're all on equal footing before God. We all need him. We all are in need of a savior. We're all sinners. But moral superiority, some people feel like, hey, you know, that's I, I'm better than you because I don't falter in those other areas. And isn't that funny that it can oftentimes be religious as well, right? Mm-hmm. Like I am morally superior because I read the Bible more than you do. Because I pray more than you do. I serve more than you do. I, I do different things. Therefore, I am more religiously superior. Therefore, that tells me that I am good. God likes me better. I am accepted before him, et cetera, et cetera. And again, I would just say, like, you're absolutely right, Susan. Like, even like, like, even our religiosity can become an idol. <laughs> we mm-hmm. start to get our sense of life and meaning and purpose from our religious accommodation rather than from the one who calls us to himself that we think we're pleasing in the first place. You are absolutely right. In fact, um, I would tell you that for years, the fact that I did not drink in the back of my head, right? It was like, hey, I don't drink. Then it, it and, and, and hadn't since I was like, I mean, you know, I don't know, like my dad might let me like try a, you know, like a sip of his beer or something when I was a really little kid. But like from the time that I gave my life to Christ, didn't drink. In fact, I spent a year in Russia as a missionary, didn't drink then either. And like we would regularly be in positions where people would like, you know, hey, we're, they're serving vodka as a regular mm-hmm. part of of the meal. And I was old enough. Right. Like, I, I, I mean, I could I could drink in that country and that but I didn't and prided myself on it mm-hmm. so much so that even as a, a follower of Christ as an adult, my wife and I both like we never drank. And what I started noticing is I had a really good friend one day who kind of pointed out how like, hey, you 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 kind of pride yourself on the fact that you don't drink, do, don't you? you kind of think that makes you sort of like a super Christian, don't you? Mm. And, I would, and I was like, no, no, no. I just don't want to be a stumbling block. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just trying to, and, and honestly for me, like it wasn't a bad thing not to drink. But the problem is, is that I had actually made that a source of my feeling better about myself than other people. Right. Whether they were believers who drank or right. whether they were unbelievers who drank or whatever, I thought I had an edge because of this particular behavior. And it, honestly, like I had to go back and confess and repent of it. Father, you know what? I have made this thing a part of my identity more than you. And sometimes I think, at least in my experience, idols come out of what I call vows. And those are vows we make when we're younger. Like, like I'll give you an example. My mother was from um, the Slavic countries. She was a screamer. She screamed a lot. And so I vowed that I was not going to be a screamer to my children. Okay. Now, the first couple times I screamed it with my children, I caught myself and I said, no, I'm breaking my vow. And so through the years, I kind of pride myself on the fact that I didn't become a screamer. But then last week, I lost my patience with my husband. It's still there. I don't know. It's interesting. Like you use the term vows. Like I love that term and judgments also, right? Like we talk about vows and judgments. So like a vow is any statement that you make about yourself definitively right? And a Mm -hmm. judgment is any statement that you make definitively about God or others. Right. And so like a vow is about me and a judgment is about God or others. 
And if you don't know if you've got vows or judgments, I give you a really simple test. <laughs> Anytime in your life where you can point to the words always or never. Yep. Right. So like you, yep. you made a vow. Uh -huh. like, mm -hmm. I am never going to be a screamer. Like you, that's a vow sister. Mm -hmm. Like you made it, that as a vow, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. I, I am did. always going to make sure I'm the person who's the smartest guy in the room. Okay. Or like you're, are you making it about your spouse? They never do this or that. Why do they always seem to be, or we even do that with God. God, you never, God, why do you always, like what we're doing in that moment is we are categorically defining reality. We are drawing a line in the sand and we are saying this is, or it will be always or never true. That That is a vow. We are defining the reality by which we will live or we will not live definitively, right? And here's the thing. There's a reason why Jesus says, don't do that, mm -hmm. right? Jesus says, yeah. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because here's the thing. Your right. vows define you. And you are absolutely right, sister. Like when you make a vow, that becomes something that you are saying, this thing will define me and it will become a source of life for me. And you know what you do with that stuff? You got to confess it and repent of it. Absolutely. You, ask, you need to ask the father to cleanse you of it and then give back to you his truth. Because if you're building your life on something other than him, it's going to become an idol. And that's going to be a problem. And, you know, God is very serious about idolatry. You know, in fact, the first two of the Ten Commandments talk about this. The first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. And then the second one is, you shall not make yourself for an idol. So he's serious about it. But you mentioned that even as Christians, and this kind of threw me, I'm going to be honest with you, Pastor Jack, we, we can make the word of God an idol. And at first, I'll be honest with you, I was a little taken back I was like whoa did he really say that so you talked a little bit about symbols and sources is that what you were referring to with the Bible yeah sort of so like here's the thing like um, I would remind you um, when Jesus came uh, the Pharisees were experts in the Word of God like they knew it backwards and forwards they memorized vast mm -hmm. segments of it including commentaries about it they were experts in the Word of God and they used the Old Testament, right? That we, even the Old Testament that we would have, they had the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. They had the writings of the prophets. They had they had so much of the same scripture that we do, and they were experts. And they prided themselves on their knowledge of the Word of God. They prided themselves on their obedience to the Word of God. And yet, when God Himself showed up in their midst, they missed Him. Mm. They didn't recognize Him. And in fact, they turned around and had Him delivered over to be crucified. How is that possible? If, if the Bible mm -hmm. alone was sufficient to transform our lives, then it would be God, but it is not. Mm -hmm. So here's the thing, friends, just like a love letter and a lover, I, I would rather have my wife than all of our bins of love letters any day of the week and twice on Sundays. Mm -hmm. Now, I love our love letters. And you could trace the journey of our courtship. You could see the evolution of our love for one another. And, and they would be true representations of our character and of our courtship. But here's the thing. The letter of my wife's that I have, it is not my wife. Right. If I read through them, they draw me to her. They remind me why I fell in love with her to begin mm -hmm. with. And you know what? Those truths, those fundamental truths about her, I still love those things about her. But they are not her. And if you ask me if I was left on a desert island and had the choice between all of our bins of love letters and my wife herself, I'm telling you, I would rather be with my wife. Mm -hmm. And isn't that what God's trying to, to communicate to us? Just be yes. with me. I just want to be with you. Yeah. I just want to spend time with you. And I would say, remember guys, right? Like I'm a, I'm a Bible freak. 
Like I love scripture. Like I immerse my life in scripture. Mm -hmm. Like I memorize books too. Like I memorize books of the Bible. I memorized James when I was a senior in high school. Mm -hmm. I memorized first Peter when I lived in Russia. I mean, like I love scripture. I have a degree in Bible. So I'm not knocking the scriptures right. at all. They are the primary tool that the spirit of the living God uses to instruct and carefully craft and mold and sculpt us. But at the end of the day, the Holy Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. And I do think as Christ followers, we confuse that sometimes. I, I had someone ping in while I was speaking and say, yeah, but in the book of John, doesn't it say that in the beginning of the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God? And what I would say is, yeah. But if you read the book of John, what you realize is John is saying Jesus is the Word of God. Right. Jesus is the Logos of God, mm -hmm. the authority and the power by which God spoke the words into, the, into being. He's not saying that the collected scriptures that we hold and that we read daily and that we build our lives on, he wasn't saying that that was God. Right. right. Right? So I do think we have to be really careful. As followers of Jesus, it is really easy for us, just like you said earlier, it is easy for us to take our Bible and to say, I am contenting myself that I am doing the things in this book and to never be drawn through the book to the person who wrote it. And I'm not talking about the gospel writers, and I'm not talking about Moses. I am talking about the God who superintended the scriptures that came to us, who wrote it through human authors and said, this is my love letter to you. Be drawn through it to me. But make no mistake, friends, the word of the Lord is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is mm -hmm. profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped to do every good work. But at the end of the day, it is not God. That's right. And if we make it God and we make it our source of life, we make it something it was never intended to be. And it is possible, brothers and sisters, for it to be an idol. In short, I would say, just like you asked a minute ago, there are a lot of really good things that God intended to be symbols to us of his love. My wife is a symbol to me of God's love and acceptance and affirmation and affection for me. But the minute I make her the source of those things, I take right. something that was intended as a gift and I make it an idol and that's not good. Right. My children are meant to be a symbol of God's love and care for me. I'm meant to learn so much about God mm -hmm. by who they are and the way that they react and the way that they respond and the way that they love me. But the minute I make my children something very good that God intended as a gift, the minute I make them my source of those things, now I have made them an idol, and that's not a good thing. My belongings, the things that God has blessed me with, those are meant to be his symbols of provision and protection and care. And I am meant to enjoy them. But here's the thing. The minute that those become my source of provision and protection and care, they're now idols, and that's a problem. It is possible for us to take symbols that God intends in our life and to make them something they're not supposed to be, and then something good becomes something bad when it becomes an idol. And you also talk about attitudes there. Tell, tell us a little bit about that, because you talked about people, things, and attitudes. Yeah. So if you could elaborate on that. So let me just give you a story from my own life. So you mentioned that I have a martial arts background. So um, when I was a kid, um, I, I, made a, I made a vow myself, right, that was something kind of like this. Um, no one is ever going to prove me to be weak. Mm -hmm. No one's ever going no to prove me to be weak physically, mentally, like I will be, I will be capable and strong and I will make sure Kip. that I am never going to be one of those people that is just taken advantage of or weak. No one's ever going to do that to me. Can I ask, did that vow come out of a wound? Yeah, totally did. 
totally did. Okay. In fact, like I could point to the event and the events that caused me to actually make that vow, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and, and the funny thing is, is like, um, well, that'd be a different topic, but like vows are usually based on lies, right? So God didn't tell me I'm weak. I told me that as mm -hmm. a result of mm -hmm. my inability mm -hmm. to respond in mm -hmm. a particular situation. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and the voice of the enemy was right there to say, see, if you were really strong, you'd have been able to prevent that from happening. Mm -hmm. See, if you were strong enough, Jack, this would have never happened to begin with. If you were strong enough, you'd be able to, therefore, that means you're weak. Now, that's a lie. That is not true. That's not who my father says that I am. But I didn't know that when I was six. So as a result, I accepted that as a lie. And then I built a vow mm -hmm. on that lie. Well, nobody's ever going to do that to me again. Mm -hmm. Nobody's ever going to show me to be that again. Well, how do you make sure you're not weak? Well, how do you think I've spent most of my spare time for the 35 years after that point that I made that vow. I, I spent all my time learning every hyper-lethal martial art I could get my hands on, starting when I was around about four or five or six. Wow. And from that point forward, started learning everything I could get my hands on. And then guess what? After you learn unarmed martial arts, you better learn armed martial arts. And then what if there's multiple attackers? And what if this? And what if that? And it just became this sort of a thing that I just invested huge parts of my life into. And so here's the thing. You know what people started calling me? They started calling me Samurai Jack. Wow. <laughs> right? It like, and it was like, it was like, hey, you know what? No matter how bad of a scrape you're in, you want to make sure you're with Jack. Mm -hmm. Oh, hey, you're going to go on a team to India. You want to make sure Jack's leading that team because if stuff gets bad, Jack will take care of you. Mm -hmm. Oh, hey, you know what? If you're going to be in a dark alley, you know, like and if Jack's with mm -hmm. you, you're, you're mm -hmm. going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And then, so like I, I actually started accepting that as an identity for myself. I'm Samurai Jack. And, and I was trusting in my martial skill. I, I was trusting in these values that I had. I, I, I created an identity for myself that I had to uphold. And here's the funny thing. It's not who God says that I am. That's right. Now, like, here's the funny thing. Now that I know that, I still like martial arts. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. I, I still enjoy them, but I don't do them anymore out of this deep need to prove constantly that I'm Samurai Jack. Mm -hmm. I, I still actually, I'm one of those people who I, I own firearms. I, I go with my neighbor, we go shooting them and we have, we have fun with that. Here's mm -hmm. the deal. But I don't have to have them in order to remind myself that I have to be Samurai Jack. Mm -hmm. I don't have to be the strongest guy in the room anymore because that whole identity of being Samurai Jack was built on a lie that my father never said was true of me. So, so here's the thing. My identity of Samurai Jack became an idol and I began to sacrifice time, energy, effort, talent, money. I began to sacrifice to it and it was important to me. Mm -hmm. and, and if something happened to me that I couldn't engage or contend or if someone was stronger or better or faster or whatever, it made me really insecure and really uncomfortable. You know why? Because Samurai Jack has to make sure he's the strongest guy in the room all the time, right. mentally, right. emotionally, whatever. Right. So right. yeah, that was an idol and that was an attitude mm -hmm. and I adopted it for myself. Mm -hmm. And you could be on the opposite extreme, being a victim right? You might content yourself that you're a victim. Guess what? That's not who your father says that you are. And that might be an idol. Mm -hmm. There's any number of ways that we make idols out of our attitudes. So when we talk about this, you, you talk about ways that we can discover what those idols are in our life. Some of them might be obvious. Some of them might not be. And somebody might have to tell you about them, like some people did in my life and your life. So yeah. You talked about this a little earlier. You can't, You talked about a challenge test and a removal test. You talked about being defensive. So tell us just a little bit more, like for listeners out there, how can I determine what's an idol in my life? Yeah. So here's the thing. If I were to say, like, um, let, let's talk about the challenge test first. So um, the challenge test is just, I, I kind of do something like this. It goes like this. 
Hey, how do you respond when I challenge the things in your life that are important to you? Like, how do you respond? If I actively challenge the ideology that you espouse, right? Uh, the people that you value or the stuff that you have or the attitudes that you display, how do you respond? Do you get angry? Do you get self-righteous? Do you get offended? Do you get judgmental? Do you fly into a rage? Do you amputate or cancel me from your relationships? Do you badmouth me to your friends? You block me on mm -hmm. Facebook or do you say things like this? By the way, like I can't tell you how often I've heard statements just like this um, in the recent past. Well, you know, I thought they were a Christian. I don't even know how you can be a whatever that thing is that mm -hmm. they are and call yourself mm -hmm. a Christian these mm -hmm. days. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't know how you can like I don't even know how you can be a Democrat and say you follow Jesus today. Right. I don't even know how you can be a Republican and say that you're a Christian at the same time. Right. right? Like, I mean, like those are some serious statements, friends. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, those are categorical judgmental. I mean, like you are putting yourself in a position of judgment over the life, the belief, the faith and the outworking of another person who calls themselves a brother or sister. So here's here's why we do that. I mentioned it before. You know why we do that? We do that because we defend our gods violently if we have to. So if someone threatens them, we fight for them. And we talked about that just a second ago in Judges 6, right? Gideon cuts down the altar, and man, the, the very next morning, people want his head. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I'm, I am not saying that it's wrong to have convictions. I do. I have very deep conviction, convictions. Ask anyone who knows me, and in mm -hmm. particular, my family and those who work with me, and they will tell you I am highly opinionated about almost everything. Mm -hmm. But here's the deal. If those convictions and opinions about things prevent me from responding to you with grace, dignity, and honor, then I would tell you that it is possible that they are occupying a space in your life that should rightfully belong to God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, you also talk about removal, and in, during COVID-19, a lot of things have been removed for us. Um, you think about sports. Um, I'm, I'm a professional clarinetist and a, you know, a, a classical musician. A lot of those concerts have been removed. So when something's removed, that's another test for us to talk about idols, right? Yeah. So like, um, if I were to say like, Susan, if you were never able to play the clarinet again, do you still know who you are? I would answer that. Yes. If you asked me 25 years ago, the answer would have been different. <laughs> Praise God. Exactly <laughs> Praise right? God. Like you, hear, like you hear young people, right? Like, um, uh, like, okay, but if my girlfriend breaks up with me, I don't even know who I would be. Mm -hmm. You're like, yeah, then your girlfriend's probably an idol because you're depending on her to tell you who you are. Right. If my group of friends unfriended me on Facebook, I'd be lost without them. Then your friends are probably occupying a space that should rightfully only come from God. Mm -hmm. And the, the problem is, is that I think one of the things that we miss a lot of times is that um, the, the problem with idols, right, is that anything that can be taken away, whatever we attach to them goes with it. So like if your source of acceptance is, is from your friends rather than from your father, then if your friends diss you or abandon you or move away, your sense of acceptance that you were getting from them goes with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If your source of validation and approval was from your kids and your kids pass away, if they're taken from you, or even if they just grow up, get married and move away, your sense of validation and approval goes with them. And then what? Right. So and whatever you attach to an idol is dangerous because everything other than your father is transitory, it's impermanent, and it's capable of being taken, corrupted, or destroyed. So here's the thing. If I'm our enemy and I know that, then here's the thing. I delight to watch children of God attach themselves to things that are not God so that when I pull the rug out from under them, they fall on their faces. And here's the thing that is true of all of us, but that I just can't figure out. 
When something gets pulled out from under us that we have made an idol, who do we blame? Mm. That's powerful. We blame God mm. for taking it away, mm-hmm. not the idol or the enemy. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is God didn't want us to attach all that stuff to the idol in the first place. That's right. Right? That's like right. he knows right. he's the only right. one who can give us all those things that our hearts desperately crave. But when something that we've attached ourselves to is taken away, we typically blame God. That's right. You know, and this is so powerful, Pastor Jack, because I think we it's convicting and powerful. And there's part of us who might go, oh, geez, I got so many idols in my life. I'm, I'm ready to condemn myself. And of course, God says, you know, there's no condemnation to them in Christ Jesus. And, you know, on this podcast, we talk about validation and affirmation and needing validation, which is just acknowledging somebody to acknowledge your experience. And affirmation is somebody to give you approval um, and of your identity or something that you've done. And the thing is, is that when we're searching for our idols, God wants us to move move them over there's a song called uh, make room i don't know if you know this song but this song talks about how you move everything over and put and and shine on christ you know focus on christ move this over move your facebook over move your social media anything move it over and just make room for jesus and so when we you know we go first full circle here and we get back to that sunflower the answer isn't Yes, you need to identify your idols so that you can move on and you can surrender them. But the real answer is really what? Focusing on God. Yeah. Yeah, I think like, uh, yeah, I think that's actually right and that's really good. And I think the other thing we we probably don't realize is, is like the more room we make in our lives for idols, the more we become like them, as opposed to the more room we make in our life for our father, the more we become like him. Um, This is, it's funny, I was, I was talking to Marvin Jr. Um, our lead pastor's name is Marvin Williams, and his son Marvin Jr. Um, and I had a chance to just do some life together over this summer. He's uh, finishing up his work at Moody Bible Institute, and um, he kind of was like, "Yeah, it's just like Psalm 115." And I was like, "What do you mean?" And he was like, "Well, you know, in Psalm 115, four through eight, it says, but their idols, idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet mm. but cannot walk." nor can they utter a sound with their hands or utter a sound with their throats. And then this is the last verse. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. Mm. I mean, I, it's just, mm. I, it's just a dead mm. on scriptural principle mm. that mm. we, we become good. like what we worship. So if you're somebody out there who is um, convicted by today's podcast, um, I'm just telling you, I'm right there with you, first of all. Yeah, me too. Um, totally and right secondly, there. And secondly, I think it's a really good place to be, actually, because when we realize how quickly we can make idols of things in our life, we take our focus off of God and we're not making room for him. We're saying yes to the idol instead of saying yes to him. And God really does want us to make room for him. So, you know, this is powerful stuff, powerful stuff. So we want to be like the sunflower, right? We want to be like the sunflower and keep our eyes focused on him. And we can do that in so many different ways. But the first way is just to make sure that we spend time in his presence. Yeah. And when you discover idols, like I I want to be pragmatic for a second, because Susan, you and I um, kind of, I think we have a pragmatic bent, right? Where it's like, okay, well, now that I know what one is, what do I do when I find one? Like, Like, what do I do? How do I, I mean, like if my wife is an idol, how do I get rid of that? Um, and I think it's just a scriptural principle, like just like any sin, 
when, whenever the father reveals something in your life that is an obstacle or an impediment to your relationship with him, you confess it, you repent of it, you ask the father to cleanse you of it, and then to give you back what rightfully belongs to you. This is just a quick story. Like my wife and I actually, this is not a, I'm not making this up. Like one of the things we learned about six years ago when we had some really godly friends pull us aside, they said, listen, I know for years your marriage has been celebrated in the church as just being a really good marriage, but we're just going to tell you we love you enough. You guys have some serious mutual idolatry. Jack, you're trying to get from your wife what should rightfully come from God. And Sammy, you are trying to do the same thing with Jack. Wow. And we actually we actually had to confess and repent. Now, here's the thing. We didn't get divorced. I mean, like, mm. like we didn't like we didn't get separated and move into. I mean, like, I'm sorry, you're an idol. I can't be married to you anymore. It wasn't like that. But what we really had to do is go through this long process of confessing to God, Abba, we have tried to get from one another stuff that should rightfully come from you. And we had to repent of it. We had to say before God and before one another, I, I turn away from trying to get from you what should rightfully come from God. And we had to do that through, like, we had to do it in prayer. We had to do that with one another. We had to continually remind each other and ourselves, no, I'm turning away from that. And it was so much an ingrained part of our marriage. We had to ask God to cleanse us of it. Father, we can only repent so far. Would you cleanse us of our mm -hmm. idolatry? Mm -hmm. Would you... Would you break off of us all that we have put onto ourselves, all that we've allowed the enemy to put onto us? And would you give us back a rightful marriage? Would you give us back a righteous marriage, one that is appropriately pointed toward you as our source, but where we enjoy one another as symbols of the things that you've given us? Father, we don't, we don't want to look to each other as sources anymore. And I'll tell you, like that has been a long, hard-fought journey back to each other. From a place of mutual idolatry but it has been so much healthier and so much better so that actual process of confess repent cleanse and restore like that is just scriptural principle right like mm -hmm. you confess yep father i've made this thing an idol mm -hmm. you repent of it i'm turning away from it father i take my hands off of it i don't want to have that thing be a source of life for me anymore i turn away from it in the name of jesus and father i ask you to cleanse me of it First John 1, 9, right? Like if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just right. to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, I ask you to cleanse me right now in the name of Jesus from this idol, from this thing that I've made a source of life other than you. Yeah. And then, Father, would you give me back what should be in the place of that idol? Would you give me back what rightfully belongs to me as a son or daughter in the kingdom of the living God so that I am functioning rightly? so that I am appropriately turning my face toward you rather than that thing. Father, would you give back to me? Would you restore? Would you heal? Would you would you give back what rightfully is mine so that I no longer turn to this thing instead of you? Mm -hmm. We were talking about the weeds and everything earlier. I keep thinking of this line, and it keeps coming back to me, so I'm going to just say it. Maybe in closing we could say, turn to God for your needs so you won't be a weed. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's really yeah, that's a, there's a Go new rap there for that. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but say, thank you so much for sharing these truths with us today, Pastor Jack. Hopefully out, somebody out there is going to be able to, to take these truths and, and have their life be changed. Are you wondering how you can support the notice? Yes, of course, keep on listening and share episodes with your friends. It would also be helpful if you could post a review of podcast on iTunes. You see, the more reviews posted, the more pot the podcast is noticed. I guess we all need to be noticed, eh? On the next episode of The Notice, do you know someone who is unemployed? Perhaps you are a wife wondering, 
how to best support your husband through his job loss. Join us for the next episode of The Notice, where we talk about unemployment, how it affects our need for validation and affirmation, and how to be there for others going through it. Listen in and learn how to notice God through unemployment. Until next time, take notice. Oh